S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Welcome to New Orleans, and it is the Saturday Night Live, live from Mardi Gras Special. It originally aired on February 20th, 1977 at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the NBC network. This is SN Hell, and we're definitely entering a new ring of SN Hell today. My name is Keith, and with me is always my good buddy, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello, Keith. I don't even care that there's no third chair. I love talking to you. Yeah, it's a, it's a true treat, and there's so much to go through tonight that we figure maybe the specials could be you and I doing things a little uh, little more laid back and a little more low-key. I've got my beads. i got my tits out. I'm ready. <laughs> So the Mardi Gras special, before we talk about anything, Matt, had you ever heard anything about the Mardi Gras special? Never. So never heard a thing. And I I only just learned when you just said it that it aired in primetime. That's huge. It did. uh, 8 p.m. Central. um, And I think it aired at 8 p.m. Eastern as well. Maybe on that one hour tape delay. But I'm not sure. Maybe it it aired at 9 Eastern. I, I didn't look into that. You know, one thing I think a lot of people don't get who weren't alive in the 70s and certainly the 80s is these specials were everywhere, these these specials and movies of the week and stuff. It's a whole lost art of television that we really don't get anymore, eh? It's absolutely true. And, well, it's because of the Internet and the fact mm. that everything is just so on demand now. But, yeah, the, the television special was uh, – it was an exciting time as a, as a television viewer. In the, well, we grew up in the 80s. And, you know, of course, they still had television specials. They still had Saturday Night Live primetime specials sometimes. And uh, they always felt like an event. So I I can imagine what it felt like. This must have felt huge. So, yeah, the television special would be like the comedy special. You know, it'd be like, you know, Carol Burnett comedy special, CBS Sunday night. You know, the Statler brothers will be there and uh, aha. and. Featuring Tim Conway and Christy McNichol and just these 80s stars that would come out, basically do a sketch and and head on their way, right? Yeah, and I think it became a series later. But as a child, my favorite television special was when they aired the bloopers and practical jokes show. Yeah, Yeah, that was Dick Clark and Ed McMahon, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember those. Those were great. You couldn't just pull them up on the Internet. No, different times. And, you know, I think that about Saturday Night Live sometimes, too, because I forget sometimes as we go through this that if you missed it on a Saturday night, you just didn't see it. Yeah, it was gone into the and you might never see it again, as was the case with this, because it was never re-aired again after tonight. The Mardi Gras special got one shot and it didn't really see the light of day again until the season two DVD came out. Well, that's significantly later. That's the 2000s, right? Yeah. A lot of this was a lot of research went into this episode. Uh, a lot of the following comes from one of about four or five sources beyond just interviews here and there. And so the backstage history of uh, SNL, uh, Hill and Weingrads. Uh-huh. There was an article written on uh, New Orleans. In, it's Gam- New Orleans Gambit, I think it's called. It, Tom Davis's book, 39 Years of Short-Term Memory Loss, which is enjoyable. It's not awesome, but it's pretty good. And, uh, and of course, Live from New York, which we cite all the time. So... There's a bit uh, a bit of info in there about the behind the scenes ska, as well as, you know, there's a really good interview Jane Curtin does with Seth Meyers fairly recently that she talks about this a bit. Like anything else with a lot of sources, there's some discrepancies as far as the details. But in general, this was basically seen as an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> Jeez, first of all, tip of the hat to you for having 
all this information. You're, you're, you're the historian. You're the aggregator. And uh, I feel like I play the fan. And, you know, it's a good dynamic. And I wouldn't want to do what you do. I enjoy it, but I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll drop a thing right now that there are hundreds of people who, who have far better knowledge at their fingertips of or right off the top of their head of of this time period and stuff. So, I mean, by all means, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's uh, this is what I was able to get my paws on. No, I don't believe it. You're the best. <laughs> well, I'll have to write a book, I suppose. Uh, how did this all come about? Saturday Night Live was due for a two week break in February. And Michaels was hoping to shake things up a little bit. Uh, it was cold in New York. It was going to be an extra cold winter. And they realized that the, the break coincided with Mardi Gras. So they decided, let's go to New Orleans, have fun, and do a show. NBC, at the same time, was looking for some key programming for their February sweeps and their uh, big event Sunday specials. Two and two got put together, and they decided, let's go to the Mardi Gras and do a live show and use it for the big event. Everyone seemed pretty excited at first. Uh, I shouldn't say everyone. 90% of the people were really jazzed, pun intended, to be going to New Orleans to do this show. There was one very vocal holdout, and that was director Dave Wilson, who had done a Mardi Gras special with the Perry Como show. And he was very much against going to Mardi Gras and doing a show because he called it a zoo and not just a zoo, but a dangerous zoo at that. Nobody really listened to Wilson on this one and plans were put in place. That, uh, children, is what happens when you ignore experience. And having watched this now, Matt, uh, what do you think? Uh, <laughs> is Wilson the uh, the voice of reason in the room? Before I answer that question, I would like to make a reference to the, the documentary that we've spoke of on the show before, Love Gilda, the, the life of Gilda Radner. And uh, I thought it was really interesting in the documentary when they talked about the Mardi Gras show. And uh, it's it's nothing to do with the content, so I want to start there. But in the show, that's when they really felt that they were stars. When they arrived in New Orleans and the people are going crazy for them and they felt like rock stars, they posit in that documentary that this is when we knew that we were something that this was a hit that this is a real thing we got going on and i'm extra curious to really get into the show after this mardi gras special you know whether or not it was a success or a disaster uh i think when you go and you get the reaction like like kiss just came to town and i think it mattered to them that they showed up in new orleans from new york city and they felt like rock stars. Well, yeah, it's the first time as a group, as a, as a full group and a full show company, I suppose, they left New York together. And this is like, you know, their Beatles landing at the airport, you know, coming to America. It's uh, And indeed, they were uh, extremely, extremely popular and people were mobbing them and really excited to see them. And there were events planned. And, and you're absolutely right. This was their introduction to mega fame because you're not going to get that in new york i absolutely know what you mean you know new york city is its own character and everybody plays second fiddle to the city but uh i'll tell you what to answer your question dave wilson spot on man absolutely yeah. right. so the mayor moon landrew was contacted and he figured it was a great idea basically for uh, from his standpoint new orleans had just undergone a beautification thing there was a lot of new things on the waterfront uh some things have been upgraded so it was a good time to 
well, number one, to show the new facilities, which I think they did successfully. It was also a uh, an opportunity to change people's perceptions of Mardi Gras as a as a time that rough and <laughs> and filled with debauchery. Well, they failed miserably. <laughs> Mission not accomplished. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> So a crew of 30 showed up about a week before, and despite the last minute, they were able to get hotels. Uh, there had to be some changing and switching around throughout the week, but uh, but on that, in that regard, they they did get lodging and and really and, tells you how many people want to go to New Orleans in 1977. <laughs> well, I, I was also thinking too. I mean, they would have had you know, if your typical college kid wanted to go to Mardi Gras. He's going to find, you know, a cheap ass hotel. They probably had a good hotel budget as well, right? Fair. So uh, this is going to really emanate from, I guess, four main uh, areas. Three sort of, four sort of. So the uh, Jackson Square, where the uh, where the statue of Andrew Jackson is. The Theater of Performing Arts, newly built or newly renovated, would have Randy Newman, the SNL band, the New Leviathan Oriental Foxtrot Orchestra, and the Meters were scheduled to perform at the Theater of Performing Arts. We'll talk about all of them as we go on. Jane Curtin and Buck Henry were stationed on a rickety scaffold at the corner of Bourbon and Canal Streets. Uh, they were going to be doing a parody of the Thanksgiving Day Parade with the Bacchus Day Parade. And also, they were sort of going to be serving as anchors. So if there was an issue with anything else in the show, power, cameras, anything like that, they could easily throw back to Buck and Jane, who would be safe on this platform overlooking the parade that was going by and they were with Herb Sargent and Alan Zweibel and the four of them were ready with jokes well they were ready to improv and ad-lib as many jokes as they could the rest of the cast and folks like Eric Idle, Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams were going to be in the various spots in the French Quarter doing sketches there's one last thing I want to mention. Um, have I registered my hate for that non-Peacock NBC logo, that wonky N? No, please do. Fuck, God, I hate that thing. Like, the Peacock is, is, is NBC to me. And I know this thing doesn't last long, but no wonder they were in last place as a network. It was a shit logo. <laughs> yeah, terrible. I didn't even know what it was when it came out. I was like, the fuck is that? Like, CBS is I. I mean, we know that. And ABC and the black ball. And of course, Fox has the big red <laughs> asshole of a fox. <laughs> so our first sketch is in Jackson Square, and it's Dan Aykroyd as Jimmy Carter sitting on the back of Andrew Jackson's horse, um, the statue. Uh, he has a live mic. There's thousands of fans yelling and hooting. He says he's having a great time at Mardi Gras uh, and looks forward to getting back to work in Washington. He takes a drink. And Lorraine appears as Rosalind Carter and tells him he's been up there for two days and has to come down. Carter does a rebel yell and then says, live from Mardi Gras, it's Saturday night. At this stage, I'm just going to give my review here. I thought this was a good opening and any indication of the bad things to come, I, I didn't see them here. This was actually, I thought this was great. Agree completely. Uh, I thought the raucous atmosphere was actually, you know, it, it translated well at first. Uh, I could tell as soon as they showed Dan, but before they zoomed out, I, I knew he was up on the horse. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's iconic. The, the horse, that is, not Dan on the horse. But I could, I knew where he was as soon as they, because they didn't crop it. The crowd is going off. Again, like it's like Kiss just walked out. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, they got Lorraine down there on the crowd and there is an absolutely tangible energy 
That's it made me feel excited when uh, when I'm watching it to watch the show. You know, Dan is in fine form as Carter. His blinking was off the chart in this particular segment. The only thing I didn't like, just to be nitpicky, I mean, we're here, we're doing a podcast. That's what we do. I hated his delivery of live from Mardi Gras Saturday night. It was so yeah. limp. He he should have pounded that. Yeah, I wonder. I was wondered about that. Yeah. And and I think as they go on, and I think in, in more modern times, I don't mind that they, they break character a little to yell it. Uh, yeah, I'm me cool too. With that. You fucking yell it. So for each segment or most segments, I have what I'm calling a fun disaster fact. So the fun disaster fact for this bit is less than 10 minutes before they went to air, the power supply at Jackson Square had died out and the backup power, what had been bothered to procure, was either not working or completely faulty. Now, Audrey Perk Dickman was stationed with Lauren Michaels, and she had been responsible for timing the sketches earlier in the day during the dress rehearsal. But that dress rehearsal was a complete disaster. So she was unable to really get good timing cues for this episode. She told Lauren she was quite nervous. And Lauren Michaels, who's always known for being a pretty cool, laid back character, admitted that he was so nervous he had just thrown up. So (laughs) something something rotten in the state of Louisiana, you know. Yeah, that's uh, that's not encouraging. So we now go to an intro video. And this is shots of New Orleans and Mardi Gras with uh, Don Pardo just doing a standard intro. The Not Ready for Primetime Players get some really neat intro video clips that I really liked. We have Ackroyd on a bike. Belushi is checking out a woman as she passes. Jane is meditating on a shore. Garrett's laying on some railroad tracks. Bill Murray is coming out of a store. Um, Lorraine, I just have, is looking really hot by a fountain. And Gilda is eating a a bakery treat. I I really like this intro video. This was another high point for me, actually. I I really got excited by this this intro. Loved the presentation of the Not Ready for Primetime Players. I took two notes. Note number one, Lorraine Newman looked incredible. Yeah, yeah. Note number two, Bill's mustache is ridiculous. <laughs> Funny with, with Lorraine, I mean, I don't often, you know, talk about the looks of the females necessarily. And and especially with Lorraine, where a lot of the time her footnote is being the, you know, the, the sexy one, where I, I sort of think that is uh, undermining what she actually did on the show because she was a tremendous performer. However, I couldn't help but notice she looked like amazing in that in that shot. Yeah, you know, I'm a Jane guy, but I, I can see why people say that. But yeah, it's it's not, uh, you know, shouldn't undermine talent. Having said that, during season one, all the time, I was like, fucking Chevy Chase is so handsome. That's true. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we go to Randy Newman, and he's at the New Orleans Performing Arts Center with the New Leviathan uh, Oriental Foxtrot Orchestra, and he plays Louisiana. This is a huge receptive crowd, and... Randy Newman is welcoming everyone to Mardi Gras, um, and then he introduces where everyone is. I have a little bit more about Aunt Randy Newman as we go on. This didn't work for me. Uh, I mean, the audience loved Randy Newman, um, and the uh, orchestra is fantastic, and I'll go on to talk about them as well. But having him serve as the host, I didn't think he brought the necessary charisma, especially to the speaking part that was necessary for this this show. There's a string section. You yeah. can't come out here and open your hot Mardi Gras show with a string section. This crowd 
is ignited. They are going to scream and cheer for everything. So I think if you're in TV and you're doing production, you take that for granted. We've got a hot crowd. Mm-hmm. So now you've got to think, okay, the crowd's hot, whatever. You can just write that off. But you still have to make a good TV show. And Randy Newman starting your hot comedy show in primetime with a string section is such a stupid idea. I do not understand the decision-making process that said, you know what we should do to start the show? Randy Newman with a string section. I, I really like that orchestra, but you know what I think? I mean, they were probably all in bed at this point, but I kind of thought that, that pre- the Preservation Hall Jazz Band... Remember they played last year the Dixieland Jazz? I do. I would have loved to have seen them somewhere in this episode. But Randy Newman, I don't know. He just didn't seem like the right choice to me at all. And, you know, in 2022, this guy out here talking about washing away New Orleans. Like, who? Oh, shit, yeah. Turn that down a little, pal. <laughs> yeah, you might want <laughs> to pull that back. Christ, I hadn't thought of that. So uh, he throws to uh, Buck and Jane. They're, like I said, on the uh, corner of, uh, of, of Bourbon and Canal with a crowd of 15,000 behind them. And people um, are immediately throwing things. I thought Buck and Jane both looked extremely uncomfortable, even at this early stage. But my God, they, they did. They were pros. They did exactly what they could. Basically setting up the show and saying they're waiting for the parade. Yeah, I agree completely with your assessment of them. They they took it all in stride. And right away, you can't not notice, this is wrong. This is mm-hmm. not going to work. I can't believe there's another hour of this. This crowd is insane. They're drunk. They're throwing shit around. Buck and Jane are here in front of a camera trying to crack wise like they do in the studio. Mm-mm. This is just a prescription, a recipe for disaster. So the fun disaster fact on this one. Jane and Buck uh, had spent the week together hanging out and becoming good buddies. Unlike everyone else, they didn't really have to write anything because they'd be with Sergeant and uh, Zweibel. At around this point in time, however, a, a drunken partier fell under a float and was killed. So the parade route was in the process of being delayed and diverted. So at this point, they didn't know there was going to be no parade. Basically, they had no material written because they didn't need material under plan A. So this is kind of bad planning on the show's part. I don't know. Would you expect someone to be killed at the uh, Mardi Gras Day Mardi Gras parade? It, it happened only in 2020. Two people were killed at the parade. So maybe I maybe I don't expect literal death, <laughs> but I do. But I do expect an accident or chaos or something to go wrong. So, you know, the fact that it is literal death, let's put a pin in that and say there was a disaster Mm -hmm. and they were not prepared for the disaster. Yeah. Also, I would love to hang out with Buck Henry and Jane Curtin. I don't know who I'm more jealous of. Yeah, really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Jane talks about Buck on that interview with Seth Meyers and, uh, she indicates she said he was her favorite. She didn't necessarily say host, but um, there was a lot of mutual respect there. And she also says that this experience brought them closer together because they were kind of in a war zone for about two hours. You know, two of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It throws to John Belushi. He's playing Al Hurt and it's the annual hit Al Hurt in the head with a brick contest. And this was written by Michael O'Donohue. First off, uh, I thought Belushi was great in this. Uh, basically, the audience is throwing foam bricks at uh, at Belushi as Al Hurt as he tries to play his trumpet. And this was based on an actual event where Al Hurt was actually hurt 
by a thrown brick when he was on a Mardi Gras day float. And it actually took me a while to realize that this was Belushi. I thought it actually was Al Hurt for a little bit. Well done. I actually did enjoy this. Uh, I don't know if Al Hurt would have liked it very much, but uh, but I laughed. I wrote Belushi unrecognizable in beard. Great job by whoever back there in uh, costuming with uh, Belushi in the beard. But I also wrote, and I do quote, I really don't like the vibe this episode has. That's a direct quote from my note. And, you know, there's something about the atmosphere that uh, and, you know, now they get, you know, you got people throwing foam bricks. I don't think you should be joking about violence with thousands of drunk people. No. Yeah. And especially because shortly Jane Curtin and, and Buck Henry will be getting thrown. People will be throwing beer cans at, them. you know. So a little fun disaster fact for this one. There's actually two. First off, it was Tom Davis throwing the bricks. They were styrofoam bricks and uh, <laughs> of course there was enough wind that his his bricks were being carried off by the wind the other bit too belushi here is still injured from jumping off the stage he'd been partying for three days straight and at some point decided he wasn't happy with the roles he got so he locked himself in his room and he refused to come out and they had to send some executives to go get him i was really disappointed to to hear that actually from belushi because i think he's well positioned in this show yeah that really you know i like to joke that belushi is a piece of shit but you know i don't know that he's a piece of shit he, he, you know by by all accounts at this time he, he's still just a guy working his butt off trying to be a star but i mean in saying that i think we also have to acknowledge that they are openly joking at this point in the show about his behavior and his drug use Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess you're right. Disappointed for sure to hear this uh, because you're a professional, sir, and, and you're part of an ensemble. You're not the star of the show. That That's rotten. I don't I don't like knowing that. It's around this point in time to, you know, to, to go rotten again. And there's different levels of credibility when you read interviews with former cast members and crew. And Jane is towards the tippy top for me for for credibility, for having a good memory and a good assessment of what happened. It's around this point, Jane actually finally goes to Lauren and says, you have to do something about Belushi. And uh, Lauren refuses. So Jane and Lauren spend several months not speaking to one another over that issue. So I recall that from the uh, from the live from New York book Mm -hmm. conversation and Jane being like talking to Lauren through proxies after. Yeah. Yeah. Gilda mainly, I think. So we now go to this is for me the weirdest part of the episode and i'll explain why in a second we go to my, one of my favorite ads it's the quarry ad i love this quarry ad you're you're a fan of it as well right i like it okay it's one of those things that when i watch it i really think they missed a joke this ad needs them bleeding from the mouth and yeah. i mentioned it when we saw it the first time i'm mentioning mentioning it again if they started bleeding from the mouth when they ate the cereal, I think you got a home run. As it stands, I think it's just a double. So you're familiar with the Mandela effect, the whole Sinbad played a genie in a movie thing where people yes, remember indeed. things wrong. I've seen the Quarry ad. It has to be a hundred times at least that I've seen it, including only a couple of weeks ago when we covered it for the Paul Simon episode with Chili. I've never noticed the sun at the table. I mean, I've only seen it twice. I can't really oh. comment. Yeah, that is interesting. I- because this is one of my favorites and it's always, you know, there's a there's a playlist I have of, of SNL ads that I throw up every now and then when I'm feeling a little blue. And uh, yeah, never, ever noticed that sun before. So we now go to uh, Rhonda Weiss and Sherry. They're with Penny Marshall and they're at a fountain dressed up like Southern Bells. 
Ronda can't find any guys. Ackroyd, Murray, and Belushi show up on um, on motorbikes as the National Bees Motorcycle Club, the Scab, Jake the Snake, and the Tongue. And each man rides off with each of the women. This whole segment was was pretty crummy to me. I didn't get a big laugh out of it. Uh, yeah, I certainly hated it. Let's get that out of the way. <laughs> Before I comment on a couple of things, uh, obviously I enjoyed that his name is Jacob the Snake. That's pretty cool. At first I was like, why does the tongue talk like that? And I'm like, oh, because his tongue is too big, I guess. I guess. Uh, I, I did find it funny that Penny Marshall said he had a decent looking hog. That was fun. And I thought Gilda did okay in this. Uh, I, I thought she played her part well. And uh, I, I found Penny pretty attractive in this sketch as well. But disaster. I mean, I didn't like it. Don't get me wrong. Despite that, I I can scrounge for good things to say about it. I didn't like it. Some fun disaster facts on this one. Marshall and Cindy Williams arrived early in the morning as they'd been rehearsing in their episode of Laverne and Shirley the day before. They were both exhausted when they were called for the morning's dress rehearsal, which they didn't know about. Williams had already moved hotels and nobody knew where she was. And Marshall had just taken a sleeping pill. There was no way to really get them, or I guess in this case her, to the location. So Belushi and Aykroyd had to go on the motorcycles and pick her up. Then uh, Marshall raced from this sketch to the next segment she had to be at in the sidecar of a cop motorcycle. So transport is not being well taken care of. Did, did I hear you right? Is Penny Marshall on sleeping pills? No, I mean, I think it was, it seems legit. Like they showed up at like five in the morning and okay. uh, she took a sleeping pill to go to sleep in her hotel. Okay. Um, I thought, for, yeah. you know what I thought. So there's an ad for Garrett Morris singing Fats Domino and he's doing this live in front of a big crowd. On the album, it's just a bunch of Fats Domino songs played exactly the same way. And he sings Blueberry Hill twice. And you can get this collection for $49.95. I like Fats Domino. I like Garrett Morris. I like when Garrett sings. I like fake ads. This was one of the better bits for me. I really enjoyed this, and the crowd were were loving it. So I enjoyed this one. Me too. I thought Garrett was in fine form. And once I realized he was just going to keep hitting those keys, I actually got a really good laugh out of it. It mm. felt like the show for a minute. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It did. It did feel like the show. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So our fun little fact about Garrett, it's not super fun. It's kind of disappointing, actually. Garrett had a few things to do on the show. And, and the reason people say he got shut out was because he was supposed to shoot a video going around New Orleans. And he'd written a song called Walking Down Rampart Street. And he wanted clips of him at various locations singing the song. Lauren balked at it. He didn't think it was a good idea. This really kind of took the piss out of Garrett being home for that for that week. That was something he was really hoping to do and, and, and thought he could do. And, and Lauren was usually, despite what we see, Lauren was actually one of the uh, biggest supporters for Garrett on the show. So he was really disappointed about that. And, and so am I. Yeah, me too. Like, what a wasted opportunity. It's not like you're sitting on a bunch of gold here. Like, you opened the show with a string section and Randy Newman. I don't know why it was nixed. You know, maybe there was some logistical problems. But I always think, you know, when someone's in their hometown, give them that little extra something. For sure. Get the hometown pop. Give the hometown boy his due. Uh, and I'm, if anybody deserves it, it's Garrett from his general lack of exposure on the show compared to the other not ready for primetime players. Terrible news. More terrible news to hear. The one undisputed success of the week was actually courtesy of Garrett. 
And uh, <laughs> sometimes you hear about events happening with, you know, any show or whatever, and you kind of wish you were there. Garrett's aunt made a huge Southern-style family meal for the cast and crew, and Garrett invited them to come by. Just absolute straight raves for the atmosphere, the food, uh, the, the hospitality. It seems to be the one thing that everybody really loved about that uh, trip to the Mardi Gras. They don't deserve Garrett Morris. I don't think so, eh? So our next bit is uh, Randy Newman with the orchestra singing Marie. Uh, I just give this one a you know thumbs down. Not not that it was bad. It's just badly placed. How do we completely grind the energy of the show to a halt? Randy Newman and a string section again. Good idea. I, I always thought I liked Randy Newman. And what I'm realizing is I like cherry picking Randy Newman's catalog. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you know funny. what I'm saying? Like, I do know what you're saying. Stones, like the Rolling Stones, I'll be perfectly honest. I'm not a fan of the Rolling Stones. I just like a lot of their individual songs. But if they had to pick their playlist, I'm not listening to it. Yeah, I get it. I feel like that way about probably Black Sabbath or something. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Yeah. He throws to uh, a Gary Weiss film in a graveyard. And this is a, uh, a film about a man who paints the graves and keeps them looking nice. He likes working in a graveyard because people don't talk back to him. He's got this really awesome Cajun accent. The live crowd is loving it. I'm really glad that they pumped in the live crowd sound, the reaction to this. This was actually one of Gary Weiss's good ones. This guy was unique, and again, we've talked about it. I wanted more of this after it was done. I thought the length was perfect. It, it felt like a regular episode for a minute, mm. watching a Gary Weiss film, which is nice. And you're right, it's a good one. It's a very unique person. Uh, just talking to us. And that's what I want from Gary Weiss films at this point. Don't get me wrong. I don't understand half of the shit that guy said. <laughs> but it doesn't mean I didn't like it. We now go to Dan Aykroyd playing Tom Snyder on Bourbon Street. And he's looking into the phenomenon of topless and bottomless bars. Bill Murray, who's doing his sort of droopy-lipped Caddyshack thing, comes out as the uh, the owner of one of these bars. And Cindy Williams comes out as Velocity, and I didn't recognize her at all. And he asks her just a bunch of questions about her, her, her job. She's one of the uh, entertainers in one of these clubs. And he asks her to calculate how many hours she's danced topless. Snyder goes in to see what the club is like, and Murray uses it as a selling point, kind of hawking the fact that, uh, that Tom Snyder is now in my club. And Aykroyd comes out saying the place is a ripoff because he's seeing G-strings and pasties. And that's not topless or bottomless. The final sort of shot of the bit is Tom, uh, Tom Snyder's teddy bear laying in the gutter at Mardi Gras. I don't think Murray has it yet, but thought Aykroyd and, and, and Cindy Williams were quite good in this. Uh, this. This is good. It's a nice opportunity for us to disagree, which I always uh, value. I really did not like this. As much as I like, you know, I, I'm a Tom Snyder guy, mm -hmm. and I like Dan doing Tom Snyder, and even when he did it here, his Tom Snyder laugh gets me every time. But I think there's a weird feeling to this sketch about ogling and objectifying sex workers that, that I thought was shitty. And Velocity, fantastic dancer, mm. by the way. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I had no idea who she was. And also, I did pull up an inflation calculator. Buck 25 at a titty bar today is six bucks a drink, which is still pretty damn okay. Yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah. I mean, it's not, but it, <laughs> it is. You know? Yeah. Good prices at the titty bar from Bill Murray. Hmm. Speaking of Bill Murray, do not like him doing this voice, 
this character. I mean, you kind of mentioned that uh, he's not quite there yet. Uh, I felt you were being very generous when you said that. I think he sucked in this yeah. sketch. That stupid voice and him mugging, I don't want to say it dragged the whole thing down because I didn't like it to begin with. But there was a lecherousness about yeah. it that I didn't like. And Tom going into the bar and then coming back out and being like, well, uh, they got some pasties and all the things on their vaginas. He didn't say vaginas. But, you know, when he's talking about the pasties and the covered bits, you know, I guess I thought it was pretty sexist. I don't know. I think we're seeing it in a different lens. But I will agree that this wasn't as good as it could have been. Sure. Like if you got Dan Aykroyd and you have the opportunity for him to play Tom Snyder and he's so good at it, that was wasted. You know, as good as Velocity looked, she came out there. She didn't really, there was no jokes landing or anything. Uh, so it just, I thought it spun its wheels a little. And I, I'm, over, I'm hating Bill Murray over here. And yeah, I, I did yeah. not like this at all. Fun disaster fact on this one, not really disastrous, but that week Dan Aykroyd had started hanging out with Hunter S. Thompson. Funny. Um, and uh, Tom Davis was really excited to meet Thompson and they went to see him and he wouldn't let them in. Get a, a door chained shut. So disastrous for poor Tom Davis. To be a fly on the wall with Dan Aykroyd and Hunter Thompson in 1977, <laughs> can you imagine? Would have been a hoot, yeah. It's probably a little scary. The, the crazy shit they must, because, you know, Dan's a kooky guy. Yeah. Hunter Thompson was insane. I can just imagine. And Tom Davis was a partier, too, so it uh, would have been an interesting trio, too. So we're now at uh, Jane and Buck. They're waiting for the parade again. Uh, the crowd is booing, and they're still throwing stuff, and they're throwing more stuff. They're talking about the parade being delayed, and then they mention that Henry Winkler is serving as a uh, Mardi Gras king or parade king, basically the Grand Marshal. So Henry Winkler's in town, and they throw to a Baba Wawa Henry Winkler interview from earlier in the day. So Henry sort of talks about the Fonz, and he does a really good job here, and he's talking about his confusion he has as the Fonz. I mean, I, I remember Fonzie vaguely. I've never gone back and rewatched Happy Days, actually. But as as iconic as the Fonz was, I know Winkler better as kind of our modern-day Buck Henry, where he does, you know, he, he kind of gives an everyman thing, but you also think he might know where there's some bodies buried and, and where he can get some, you know, really filthy pornography. So I really enjoyed Winkler in this. This is just more Baba Wawa stuff for me. But Henry Winkler did a great job. He's not out here turning coal into diamonds. He, he's, he's doing what he, he's asked to do and he's doing it well and you're right that in his latter day career uh, he's he's excellent in some of the supporting roles he's in in movies and things like that uh really uh, just a good actor i'm really glad he was henry winkler here and he wasn't the fonz do you know what i mean no i do know what you mean that would have been unfortunate we already have one shit character on the screen not to say the fonz was a shit character no no um, so a little disaster fact on this one. Gilda was definitely overwhelmed by the attention. And every time she left the hotel room, which actually wasn't much, um, Gilda, Lorraine and Jane stayed in the hotel as as much as they not as much as they could. But they they didn't go crazy partying to the extent that the fellows did, um, except Garrett, who I think was just with family and friends that week as, as much as he could be. But Gilda was so kind of overwhelmed by the attention that she just started wearing a mask everywhere she went. What a threatening environment to yeah. arrive into because these, you know, just because you're on TV doesn't mean you're a, you know, not a shy, quiet, or reserved performer. I certainly wouldn't slight them from being like, you know what, you let me know when you need me, I'll be at the hotel. Yeah, exactly. So our next sketch is uh, Ricky Mussolini, and this was written by Tom Davis, and Mussolini's played by John Belushi. 
And Ricky Mussolini is uh, Benito Mussolini's grandson, and they're reenacting his grandfather's visit to New Orleans. The audience is actually chanting Il Duce, which <laughs> I really laughed. But Belushi... <laughs> I didn't notice that. Oh, no, they really... yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Belushi comes out and stands on the, the balcony and addresses them and says, boy, you people sure know how to throw a party. Um, <laughs> this was actually I probably in a lot of ways my, 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 my most audible laugh of the, the episode. I really enjoyed this. It was pretty uh, – it was fun. I really wish I'd heard them chanting that. That really would have – amped it up my enjoyment of it significantly it's like a it's like a, a rogue wrestling crowd yeah 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 i mean somebody must have told them you know chant il duce but uh but they did it you know that's, that's so good. <laughs> this crowd does not give a shit they're just nope. they're having a good time this is a big party oh yeah you guys are filming your tv show guess what it's mardi gras you're in our town fun disaster fact on this one someone had asked for police uh, protection. Uh, New Orleans had promised it, uh, but it doesn't look like they agreed on how much police protection was going to be available. And also those that were kind of working, some police in mild ways took part in the revelry and others were really overwhelmed by the situation. A lot of cops were allegedly not taking too much seriously. They sort of threw their hands up and said, well, we'll just have to clean everything up after it's done. So then they go to Jane and Buck. Jane says the parade was invented. I think Jane says this. When there were just people lined up on Canal Street, and they eventually just decided to put a parade in the middle. I thought that was kind of fun, and it sounds like an Alan Zweibel joke. They throw to Eric Idle, who's at a cafe reporting on the crowd. Unfortunately, the crowd has moved on from this cafe, and now it's just Idle and a gentleman in the background who eventually passes out, or he just dies at the table. The whole cafe is a big mess. Uh, Idol is going to stay there, though. He does a good bit about, and I didn't write it down, uh, about only one quarter of the French quarter are actually French. And he breaks down and he's like, I think, one sixteenth of the quarter of the eighth are Polish. And I kind of enjoyed this, actually. This was this was a fun, uh, fun mini segment. Eric was great. I, I really I, I didn't like the segment and I'm not trying to be Captain Negative this episode, but I really thought uh, my note was Eric Idle is a natural and he is carrying this mm-hmm. dead segment. Uh, I really I thought it was pretty lifeless. Like, can you imagine anybody else doing this? And you'd be like, what the fuck is this on TV? It was yeah. just all Eric Idle's presence. Fun disaster facts, I suppose. Eric Idle was unscathed by the disasters. I, don't, I couldn't find anything where he was talking about um, anything to do with this show, actually. And his name didn't come up on anything. Unfortunately, Tom Schiller in the background was not uh, not having a fun time. Can't find out why, but he was very down that week. He was quite miserable and uh, kind of depressed. Alan's wife, Bell, who had recently broken up with his girlfriend, was also really, really, uh, really depressed and not having a good time. So Michael O'Donohue, I can't find figure out if he's <laughs> – it's always hard to tell, I suppose. He was either being a nice guy or a complete dickhead, gave Alan's wife, Bell, a large wine sack with the word lithium printed on the side. Um, <laughs> Marilyn Miller had come down with a flu, and she spent the bulk of the week in a room with 104-degree fever. And Dick Ebersol, who had recently married the original letter turner on Wheel of Fortune, he couldn't find his wife back home in California, and he spent the majority of the week – on the phone trying to track down her whereabouts all turned out well she was just out somewhere yeah some people were having a rough time down there and it wasn't all parties for them this whole thing is just a bad idea i can't imagine what the mood and the thought is mid-show like there must be such regret from <laughs> behind the camera like what have we done i know doing live theater i've done shows where partway through you're like oh god this is terrible 
but I was never in, in fear of my life, you know. Gary Weiss, Down South. Now, this is a, a quick Gary Weiss film, um, and it's showing a lot of places with the name Dixie in the title. And the tune of Dixie is playing. The crowds are seeing it, and they're loving it. I, I didn't like it so much that the pace of this show is such a mess to me. And, you know, now we've got a, a, a double Gary Weiss, and it's not what I'm used to from Gary Weiss, or at least not as uh, directly. And, like, this this is even longer than the average Saturday Night Live episode, and I feel that they're filling time. And I at this point, I am proper confused. <laughs> I, I was watching this, though, and thinking, is this a better choice than Garrett singing his song? And the answer was no. 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 Not even close. There are some chirons. I missed one earlier where uh, it was super edgy, where they said that the woman in the audience owned Alex Haley's grandfather or something. I didn't like it. This one I did get a little chuckle out of. The man in the audience smokes Mardi Gras. He looks like Rob Reiner. Totally. I was like, is that Rob Reiner? Wait a minute. Is he with Penny Marshall right now? Not that it was, of course. I saw him for two seconds. I don't know. So now we go to the new Leviathan Oriental Foxtrot Orchestra. And uh, I probably should mention, like, in this case, Oriental has nothing to do with the pejorative term for Asian. Um, it's the same way Orient Express has nothing to do with sections of Asia being called the Orient. Um, the Oriental Foxtrot was a, a particular dance in the early 1900s. And they perform a song called Rebecca Come Back from Mecca with uh, vocals by George Schmidt. Um, this is not going to surprise you, Matt, but I think we're going to be at odds on this one. I loved this. This was fantastic. What is this orchestra shit? They they were uh, they're the local band that uh, like local orchestra that that does sort of fun novelty tunes. I, I have repeatedly dunked on Saturday Night Live for featuring too much music. And you know what I think proves me right is that eventually they figure it out and stop doing it. And I think that's a that's a big finger point for me to say, see, see, you you know better now. You're not out here clogging up your comedy show with music. At this point in time, the variety show ship has sailed. You are a hot comedy show, a sketch comedy show with characters and a cast that people expect to see and you come out here with a prime time special and not only have i seen randy newman twice now i've got a fucking orchestra here playing with me local band i did not understand this my notes are in caps what a very very bad idea this has been it's a good thing this is in prime time because maybe you're getting some people that are on the verge of death that might actually enjoy this in 1977 when they're 80 years old and thinking oh look at the mardi gras they got the orchestra this is not cool it's not hip it's not fun i really really hate it it sucks I feel like the critic. It sucks. It stinks. It stinks. It stinks. Yeah. There. You know. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> you know my tastes, right? Yeah, I, mean, I do. You know, I, I I would sell my soul for Tin Pan Alley. You know, <laughs> so, but you know that's that's me, and uh, and I'm sure that should come as no surprise. I, I just have a fact on this one. It's not a disaster fact. It's actually quite the opposite. George Schmidt, who did uh, the, the the singing, is quite a, an amazing painter. I, I saw some of his uh, 
gallery works that he's he's done over the years a visual artist he does oil painting to me it's one of you know i would buy any one of them and put them on my wall and i can't say that about a lot of like even the masters they talk about i was really blown away by his stuff especially his jazz like there's a lot of jazz based stuff there i really liked it and i'm going to look into more of his work buck and jane back to them the only real joke they have in here that stuck with me is that parade was invented by someone with the Last name Parade, who was looking, walking along Canal Street looking for shelter, I think they said. Uh, it, it made me chuckle, but I, I know they both survive this unscathed, but I'm actually feeling worried for Buck and Jane at this point. And I can see why. It's written all over their faces. Yeah. And I mean, on, and on top of that, they obviously don't have their usual setup with the cards. They're just, they're reading everything off their friggin' papers. That's why I said earlier, like, if you want these two to improv, you're fucked. Because it's not going to happen when you've got a paper in front of your face with the jokes that some dude wrote on it for you. You know, you, you got to do what you got to do. I hope they're paid okay. So we throw to uh, Penny and Cindy at the Apollo. Well, we, they throw to Penny and Cindy at the Apollo Ball. But Cindy Williams was stuck in traffic, not making it from the uh, her velocity sketch in time. So Penny is at a beauty pageant at the 8th Annual Ball Mask of the Mystic Crew of the Apollo. This was a a gay men's beauty pageant. Marshall is stuck doing this alone. Fortunately for her, she was paired up with a New Orleans resident named Roberts Batston, who is a member of the New Orleans gay community. And uh, I thought he kind of came as close to anyone as saving this bit. But uh, this was really off, and uh, I'll get your reaction, and then I'll give you some background on this. Let me be honest with you, Keith. At this point in the show, I'm exasperated. I'm frustrated. uh, I'm not having a good time. This is not the show that I want to see. It's not the format I enjoy. Uh, so like my own, my, I wrote down, what is this debutante shit? I'm not saying I, you know, obviously I watched it, but I'm starting to not come away with anything. Um, I have like a numbness. I hate what they're doing. This really didn't work, and some of it might come from uh, what's going on here. So I have a few notes on this one. A few years prior to this, the ball had been broadcast, and some men had actually been outed and lost their jobs. So the Apollo, uh, the the Mystic Crew of the Apollo, agreed. This is where things get really weird for me. They agreed to allow a national televised live event to broadcast this only on the condition that they didn't use certain words, words like drag, gay, homosexual, queer, queen, etc. Marshall found this out fairly late, and she's there commenting on this, and she really is doing everything in her power to describe the event, but not use any of these words that were on the list. So that's, I think, a huge reason why you know, Marshall wasn't funny here because she she was watching every syllable she said. That's that's interesting. And this is their own little Dante's hell. How many levels of misery can they squeeze in to an yeah. hour and 20 minutes of television? <laughs> so there's also a bit more. This one comes according to, to uh, Penny Marshall. Gary Weiss was directing the segment and uh, he was busy either watching or or putting away or queuing up his films 
and missed the cue that came from the production truck, which I hope is not true. Bush league on Gary Weiss's part, if that's true. I mean, I mean, anything goes at this point uh, on at, on this broadcast. I think this far into the show, especially, I don't blame any of the people that are just here to work. <laughs> because- <laughs> Yeah. This has been yeah. such a bad idea. Dave knew it all along and throughout yeah. here they're doing it. So if you're just here trying to do a job, God bless you. Yeah. <laughs> but if, you, if it was your idea to come here, fuck you a little bit. And, and one person, uh, this Roberts Baston is the person that uh, she calls in to talk about the gowns and stuff. Do you remember him at the table? No. Okay, so she she gets his uh, opinion on some of the stuff. He's kind of uh, an unsung hero of the event, I think, or at least as far as it's it's pushed in the New Orleans uh, article, uh, New Orleans uh, Gambit, I think it's called, article about it. So uh, Batston uh, later developed a very, very popular and well-received tour of New Orleans, uh, taking through uh, key key spots in 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 the uh in the history of gay culture in New Orleans. It's apparently a, I don't know if it's still going, but in the past it was a very very popular tour and uh he mentioned in an interview from about five or ten years back that he still had not been paid the 90 dollars he was promised for uh, helping marshall (laughs) (laughs) so in a parody of streetcar named desire john belushi stands on the street and yells for stella outside of an apartment garrett comes out on the balcony and tells him there's no stella there and uh, belushi keeps yelling Garrett realizes he's about two blocks off from where he's supposed to be, so he gives him directions to the correct home. Lorraine comes out and asks who it was, and uh, Garrett says it was Stanley. And she says she thought so, but she gets Garrett to come back to bed. So Lorraine was Stella, and she was there all along. Um, I like this. We got Belushi's uh, Brando. The, the setting was right. This was almost show-like to me. This was, was a higher a higher note for the show. For sure for me i agree i have uh i have noted that it feels like the show here again for a minute belushi was really good he does that voice so well and even like the mannerisms like he he had this he knows what he's doing here you know at this point anything that makes me feel like i'm watching saturday night live for a minute i'm into it randy newman introduces paul schaefer who's coming out to sing the antler dance you know i really like paul schaefer and i know him as dave letterman's sidekick and i know him as a musician that shows up you know rock and roll hall of fame and stuff like that i guess i'm appreciating seeing paul schaefer at this stage in his career Um, i'm really liking him so schaefer starts singing the antler dance and he throws it to uh, michael o'donohue who is dancing on a balcony and trying to get the crowds to join in a lot of crowd members do join in, but there just simply isn't enough room, and there's far too much drunkenness for him to really get this thing going. That being said, it seems to have gone over well, but uh, the antler dance, uh, you know, it never catches on the way that O'Donoghue hoped. It's still, it's too variety show for me, you know? It's, I, and I know, maybe they're thinking they need more shit like this because of the crowd because of the environment because of how they're filming it but if i'm in that meeting once upon a time i I think i'm asking hey if we have to change what kind of show we do here why are we doing a show here Mm -hmm. you know i will say with this one this is the and and like belushi doing stanley kowalski and stuff this is exactly the sort of stuff i would have planned for short bits that pop up random spots and if something fucks up no harm no foul you lost you know three minutes or something you know what i'm saying Yeah, I appreciate that. In one of the weirdest parts of this weird episode, they throw to New Orleans Mayor Moon Landrew, and he's giving Garrett the combination to the city. I like that little joke. But while this is going on, and 
audience or a, a crowd member in an old man mask starts creeping out towards Garrett and Landrew, and he's whisked off by the cops. First, I thought it was a cast member getting ready to do something fun. And uh, then when I realized that was uh, pretty freaking dangerous shit going on. I mean, the mayor of a big city is there amongst thousands of drunk people. Yeah, they don't they don't know what they're doing. Uh, and at this point, they're just probably trying to finish the show. Uh, I was like, holy shit, is that a, is that a fan? He's got a mask on. And then uh, somebody intercepted him right away and they just no sold it and mm-hmm. kept going. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, alarming that the mayor is in such a vulnerable position and quite frankly, shame on the production for allowing that to happen. Garrett getting the combination to the city was awesome. I really it was funny. It. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently, neither Garrett nor the mayor, uh, Landrew, saw this guy coming up behind them, which is equally terrifying. Yeah, shit. So Lorraine now makes a report with John, who plays a drunk tourist with two plastic mice, or with two mice, but they're plastic, to his eyes. She asks why he's doing it. He's just doing it for kicks, which seems to be a thing going on in Mardi Gras. Um, And then he hits on Lorraine. She asks if the mice are alive or dead. He says they're alive, and he tries to wake them up. This is, again, another like quick segment. I mean, it's just showing about how friggin' random things are that people do at Mardi Gras, and I, I got a laugh out of this. Yeah, we're, we're pretty much on the same page there. You know, for all of the shitting I've been doing on this show, nothing is overstaying its welcome. It's lightning mm-hmm. fast. Everything is at such an insane pace. Our next bit is uh, Emily Latella with Bill Murray, and they're near the Café du Monde. Emily is excited. She's so excited she, by Mardi Gras. She's been drinking lots of tea. A uh, woman close to my heart in that case. She mistakes the term riverboat for liverboat. And uh, Murray is the captain of said riverboat. And uh, he corrects Emily. It's the never mind thing. Um, this was a quick Emily Latella thing. I, I sort of expected it was coming. It was nice and short, so it didn't bother me too much. And I, I kind of like Murray's look, actually, as the, the sea captain. I, I don't have anything new to say about this bit. You know, at this point of the episode, I'm watching it. I, I pray for death. Probably going to pray for a bit more in a second. This is actually my least favorite. Uh, this is just a disaster fact. I'm not calling it fun at all. Immediately after this segment, Gilda was group groped, they say. Four drunken Mardi Gras revelers swarmed her, basically, started trying to fondle her. They got her to the ground. One guy got his head up her dress. Oh, my gosh. Uh, stage, yeah. Stage manager Joe Disco. You've seen, remember Joe Disco, the stage manager? He pops out every now and then, older guy. Yes. He was there, and they found a cop. Um, him and the cop basically beat one of the Mardi Gras guys and, and, and got rid of the other three, I guess, or the other two. So uh, Joe Disco to the rescue there. Yeah, shit. Disco fever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A harrowing event. Apparently, Gilda took it in stride, understanding it was Mardi Gras, but she should not have been subjected to that uh, under any circumstances. Yeah, crazy. Back to Jane and Buck for more jokes. Um, we then go to uh, Randy Newman singing Kingfish about uh, Huey Long. Um, I know I, I like Huey Long's story. It's a fun story, but this is the worst Randy Newman song I've ever heard. <sighs> I'm exhausted, Keith. Okay. They're all the worst Randy Newman songs I've ever heard. There's so much music this episode. I don't want to keep shitting on Randy Newman. I mean, I do, but... Yeah, I know, yeah. Why is he here so much? They didn't position... I mean, he is kind of like the the low-key host of the show in this weird, stupid way. He keeps coming out. He's introduced something. He keeps singing. My God, I wish he'd stop singing. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I read this or if it's something I sort of gleaned. We're seeing so much Randy Newman, although most of it was planned. But Randy Newman's 
was in the safest place where you could trust having a stable broadcast, I think is the best way to put it. Yeah, I get that. It looked like he was in like a proper studio. He was at the the theater performing arts, and I think they were smart to put all the expensive equipment (laughs) on a stage that people couldn't get to. Yeah. But even he was nervous as hell. I mean, he was sweating bullets, and he talks about it in in, in a couple of interviews where he was not uh, he was not comfortable either, and he wasn't amongst the uh, the drunken throngs. We then go to Jane and Buck. At this point, they know the parade isn't coming, and they're getting lots of messages through the earpieces. They're feeling a genuine sense of danger. There's no hiding it. They're 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 very nervous at this stage, and they throw a sketch called Jean Lafitte. The you know the disaster fact here. They were basically to serve as the uh, the hosts. Problem was though at this stage, this is the most problematic location, surrounded by angry people. It's not particularly stable, and by this point, uh, people are both making a human pyramid and individually trying to scale the scaffolding. Absolute madness. Unprepared production. Would not fly today. Insurance nightmare beyond me. More than any other location, like I know I just talked about Gilda, but more than any other location, this one is getting dangerous. So we now go to Bill Murray as Jean Lafitte, and uh, he's trying to correct history. He's not actually a pirate. He's like more of a privateer or an independent marine contractor. Dan Aykroyd comes out as Richard Benoit, I think he says, and he compliments Lafitte on being his favorite pirate. Lafitte is pissed off, so he shoots Aykroyd. Gilda then comes up and beats Lafitte in a sword fight. He asks her what word he hates the most. She says pirate, and he shoots her. This was a, a dumb sketch made more difficult by, like, a lamb. there's a lamb and there's livestock running around, but the lamb is really loud. This was done kind of on a set that's been constructed, so they put some work into that, but this was dead for me. Me too. You know, I, I was going to joke about, well, you know, you, you put the shit last, but it's so off the rails. It's fallen apart. They must be begging for this to end. I'm begging for it to end. Uh, so I can only imagine what the people that are having to put on the show and, and do this shit feel. There were members of the crew who were responsible for building and tearing down the sets. They were in the awkward position of they now had to wait for the show to end. And then they had to start their job. So there were f- folks like um, uh, Leo Yoshimura, who we, you know, we, we've seen a few times. Uh, he was Sulu in the Star Trek. It's his most famous on-screen role. Was out extremely late tearing down sets with virtually no protection and nobody overseeing him. I think at this point you gotta you gotta blame the boss. This is Lauren's show. You know, if all the success falls at his feet. So does all the failure. You can't be doing this television special and jeopardizing the safety of your cast and crew. Yeah. And I don't care if the network mandated it. You know, it's it's your show. You stick up for your show and your people. And he didn't do that, in my no. opinion. I shouldn't even say in my opinion. He just didn't do it. No. And, and I mean, there is fault on NBC and there's fault on the city of New Orleans as well. But, you know, I think ultimately it comes to that one point where it's like bit off way more than he could chew and didn't know how to deal with it. It's easy for me to sit here fucking 40 years later and be like, you should have known better, Lauren. Uh, for all I know, he was a, a panicky mess. I, I still think if the network says you're going to do this, you plan it better. You get your shit together. And you know, he's still a young guy at the time, too. I, the whole thing is just so irresponsible. Yeah. We go to Chiron. A woman spells Kunta Kinte with a C. Um, obviously, Roots is huge at this time. And, and somewhere else in the uh, in the city, I think it's actually where they did the uh, John Lafitte sketch. 
They're doing that sketch Roots 2, which we will see as well on the show. You know, the, the slave auction one. Oh, yes, I remember. Now we're back at the ball. Cindy Williams has joined Penny Marshall, and they do a commentary for the uh, the person that was named Queen of the Ball. This was very quick, and it was quite dark. Like, dark to see, not dark in tone. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> it is rather than So, fun fact for this one, the power at the Hyatt Regency was constantly going out, and they couldn't really do anything reliable. After this segment, the pair were done. There's variations to this story as to when this happened and even who it happened to. But Williams finished her bit and uh, went up to the uh, motorcycle guy and said, uh, I'm going to the after party. And he said, "Okay, jump on. So he he took her to the party. And as he was dropping her off, she found out he wasn't a member of the production staff, just a nice guy who just drove her. Ultimately, though, that could have also been disastrous. Yep. Don't talk to strangers. Jane and Buck throw to Randy Newman singing Sail Away. We heard this song on episode two, season one. And uh, again, this was just shit. Didn't like it. I don't have anything to say about it. I'm miserable. Fun fact on this one, the Meters, a local New Orleans band on the way up. They were supposed to have this spot, but they got bumped out by Newman. All these years later, they're still members of the band who were pissed because this was their shot at national exposure. They had a hot act. They do later get booked on the show, but it's like a small pittance because they're performing in a studio in New York rather than their their area where they have a huge following. And like they said, would have blown the roof off the place. I know people get bumped but I am really uh, feeling bad for the meters on this one. You gotta, you know, Lorne not booking his show correctly. You've already not featured the hometown boy, and mm-hmm. now you're bumping a hot act like a train wreck. So Newman thanks everyone he throws to Buck and Jane. At this point, there are people climbing the scaffolding, and the, what limited production people were there were basically prying fingers off the uh, <laughs> of the scaffolding. And it says they were also remaining very polite as they did it. Jane and Buck realized they weren't getting off the platform. They were worried, so they called for police protection. Two retired cops, both in their 60s, put Jane and Buck over their shoulders and carried them through the crowd. And Jane was just absolutely bawling her eyes out, she says, as she was going through. Just the joy to know that she was saved because the realization came to them at some point, even if even on the scaffolding, like if they got down, they weren't getting themselves into any better position. Uh, they weren't any safer off the scaffolding than they were on it harrowing for for jane and she said uh, like i said earlier she and buck henry really they, they worked together a lot over their careers and they got along well and really bonded because of this terrible experience incidentally jane mentions as well that all week people were coming up to buck henry welcoming into the city and hoping that he enjoyed mardi gras <laughs> they thought he was jack lemon <laughs> So they, they, again, they go to the end. It's clips of like the ball and the audience and, and cast at different spots. And there's uh, somebody, some folks doing a version of that Roots too. That closes the curtain on this uh, Mardi Gras special. Um, just we've got a few little epilogue things to go on. But yes, Matt, as you mentioned, this type of thing never happens again. So do you want to know a little bit about the end, uh, sort of what happened with Lauren more than anyone else and the show? Yes, please, sir. Well, first off, Lauren, this a lot of this comes from Randy Newman, actually. Lauren Michaels referred to this experience as the one time in his life that <laughs> he just went to bed. <laughs> <laughs> this whole thing was a major blow for Lauren, who was riding super high on the success of the show. There had been talk about him being placed as the head of late night programming for the whole uh, the whole network. Other future live specials, this was going to be an annual thing at Mardi Gras at one point. Um, and even going to other locations, it was shelved indefinitely. According to one of the books, Lauren had actually hoped to do an episode live from Red Square. That's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. 
But you know what, though? I think Red Square, as far as security and, and order and stuff, would have been a far better option than New Orleans. That's an interesting point. But I mean, communists? They're not going to get the jokes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, they'd have to do it at seven in the morning. and. <laughs> Lauren being the golden boy with the big future, the you know, the future Brandon Tartikoff or whatever was kind of killed this night, I think. Yeah. What uh, atom bomb into your aspirations of having any late night power at this point in your career or prime time too, right? Yeah. Or, or, or literally anything. They're lucky they let him keep his show. From here on out, what we see from Saturday Night Live specials are very tightly curated specials with live bits, perhaps, but a lot of canned stuff that they throw to almost best ofs and the the commercial things they never do anything quite like this again and god bless i mean it is yes a learning experience i understand that you know and i understand you know you try something and it doesn't work and there's something to be said for that and there's something to be said for the effort i've said on other episodes i really like when the show tries when they try to be ambitious when they try to do something different Nowhere in that scenario does it involve endangering your people. No. So uh, the show had a budget of uh, $750,000. They went way over budget. It was over a million bucks. And according to one of the books, the bills came for months and months and months. They just never stopped coming. And yet, sadly, poor Robert Batston didn't get his 90 bucks yet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. I don't usually talk about ratings, but the show got a 21 share and it was creamed, absolutely destroyed by an ABC made for TV movie about a nymphomaniac housewife. What? Who starred in that movie, I wonder? I don't know, but I mean, again, this is something we were talking about. These movies of the week were huge. Wow. That, uh, That really surprises me. And what a disappointment that must be for the hot show. And I mean, it would be different if you had a good product and, you know, we don't get it's not like when I when I look at wrestling stuff today and they have like the hourlies and, you know, all the uh, the best breakdowns. Who the hell knows? But Mm -hmm. I could totally see somebody tuning into this to be like, cool, a primetime Saturday Night Live, watching it for 15 minutes and being like, nope. I wouldn't be surprised if that happened, you know, a lot. Like, I, I would think that was a huge issue. Yeah, let's just chat. So the music, um, neither of us were big on Randy Newman, and we're divided on the uh, the new Leviathan Orchestra. Am I correct on that one? Yes, you're absolutely correct on that one. I thought the music across the board this evening was dreadful. I, I'm also super disappointed we didn't get to see the meters, because at least I think we would have gotten an electric crowd for that. Yeah, that makes sense. They didn't know how to book this. I, I would have been interested to see the writing process and the decision-making process as to what goes on this show when do we do this when do we do that Uh, that that would be a fascinating read maybe it was coke fueled who knows (laughs) so we'll just go through some awards similar to our other ones they're not going to work in our tallies of the year or anything like that but uh, matt what was the worst thing of the night on camera as far as sketches and stuff jesus christ keith what a question i'm going to pick my least favorite segment of the night and this is really saying something because Barbara Wawa was on the show, but I really hated how that tomorrow segment made me feel. Yeah. For me, I actually went with, I sort of looked at it in a different tack. I went with a Jean Lafitte sketch. And the reason being is that even under perfect circumstances, I don't think that would have worked. I just think it was a bad sketch. Yeah. And like, yeah. I, I just complimented the show for, for being able to fly through a lot of these things so quickly on this particular occasion. And uh, I guess you can't win them all. 
What was the best? I'm going to go ahead and say my favorite piece of the evening was Garrish at the piano doing the covers uh, when, he, when he just kept hitting those same keys. I got a really good laugh out of that. No, I and, you know, I enjoyed a lot of this myself. I mean, I thought we had a re- one really strong Gary Weiss film. I thought uh, there was some of the sketches hitting Al Hurt with the brick I thought was funny. There was a lot of good stuff, but I actually sort of inverse to the worst i went with what is the sketch that was made better by being in new orleans and i think it was the uh the belushi uh, doing the streetcar name desire stanley kowalski thing it, it was better that they were actually on a location where they could do that and i, I really enjoyed that well there's no argument to that uh mm-hmm. I, belushi was good in it and the the whole setup like it looked cool uh, I mean, I didn't think it was funny or anything. Don't get me wrong. I didn't really think anything in this show was particularly funny. I definitely see where you're coming from and why you'd choose that. So if you had to pick an MVP for tonight, who would you pick? Whew. It sucks to see Buck and Jane suffer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so you, while my heart goes out to them, I'm not going to think about shit like that. I'm, I'm just trying to think of just what you did and what made me smile. And there's really not a lot of it in this episode. So Garrett Morris at the piano doing the covers. That that was it for me. That was the highlight of my evening. As far as an MVP, I you know, I've been hard on this person, but I think Belushi's performances were so helped by the crazy energy in the area that I almost wish in his life or his career, he went on to do more things in these chaotic places. Um, Belushi was on fire for me tonight, and uh, I was really disappointed to hear about him feeling like he was shut out and locking himself in his room and stuff like that. But uh, everything Belushi did tonight, except for maybe the bees on the bike thing really had me. Uh, he was in, I was in his corner for it. Uh, I thought the environment and what was going on, he was perfectly suited for it. And he, he shined brighter tonight than he ever has. It's so ridiculous. Like he, he was, you're right. He was yeah. featured and to have this dramatic diva behavior when, you know, you're the raucous guy, you're the rock guy with the rock crowd. And, you know, he got to do that. So mm-hmm. what a what a bitch. Well, you know, and the other bit, too, is you don't know, maybe they changed some things and put stuff back in after his bit. Maybe he was just so whacked out that he didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Nobody likes me. We've all heard that. Somebody's surrounded by thousands of friends and they're bombed and they're like, everyone hates me. And it's like, you just had 55 people at a birthday party, you know. Yeah. The big question that was hitting me is how could this have been done better? if they decided to go to Mardi Gras. And the only thing I could really come up with was to sort of maybe have one or two segments in the street, but to put everything else in that's that's perhaps on that stage where Randy Newman was and just have, you know, some straight skits, Mardi Gras flavored things with bits out. You know, and that's how, like when Conan would go to places or a lot of shows when they go to places, they, you know, little bits on the street, but you don't base your whole friggin' show on the streets. Exactly. And do your show like you have a successful show with a proven formula. Now you're going to go to prime time with this big opportunity and ignore what made you successful. What a missed opportunity. Well, we even know from their their trips over to Brooklyn earlier in this season, having that fresh crowd is 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 awesome. I don't know if they overthought it or they underthought it as far as presentation of the show. So was this the big giant disaster? that uh, that everyone talks about or is that a little bit of an overstatement this is the worst episode of saturday night live we have ever watched i know we're not rating it i'm gonna rate it 1.5 out of 10 (laughs) 
the disastrous stuff really comes out for me when I when I looked into the backstage. This to me was not as terrible as as I'd been led to believe. I did get some serious laughs out of this, and there was some really strong stuff. The logistics was absolutely miserable, and and so much of that stuff brings it down for me. But as far as did I enjoy, you know, enough of the stuff? Uh, yeah, I did, and it's I probably enjoyed this more than you know some of the episodes we have watched. Um, and maybe that's the the shtick of them being outside and and in New Orleans and stuff like that. I see what you mean. We watched a couple of really boring ones. This was not boring. There's something in watching that instead of something that's just a snoozer. This is the end of our first special episode. Uh, it's the Mardi Gras special. A lot of people haven't seen it. It is out there on DVD. There are some places on the interweb you can find it. Not many, though. So we'll be back with a regular episode in about a week. I think we're looking at Steve Martin and the Kinks. So, Matt, this was a pleasure to uh, to go to Mardi Gras with you in our own special way and uh, enter a new ring of hell and compare our wonderful thousands to uh, New Orleans's, uh, at least in 1977, miserable thousands. A pleasure as always, sir. I love exploring hell with you. <laughs> So yeah, we'll be back in about a week with Steve Martin and the Kinks, but until then, we'll be doing all we can to avoid ever having to do a live version of this show from Mardi Gras here in SN Hell. <laughs>